So last night the president asked for Ambassador Bolton's resignation. As I understand it, it was received this morning. I'll leave to the president to talk about uh, the reasons he made the decision. But I, but I would say this, the president's entitled to the staff that he wants. At, at, at any moment. This is a staff person who works directly for the President of the United States, and he, he should have people that he trusts and values and whose uh, efforts and judgments benefit him in delivering American foreign policy. And when the President makes a decision like this, he's well within his rights to do so. U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton has been fired. Or he resigned. The administration of U.S. President Donald Trump hasn't exactly been stable. Dozens of officials have come and gone in the three years of his presidency. With Bolton's departure, Trump says that he fired him. Bolton, however, says he quit. Either way, the White House has now lost one of its most vocal critics of Iran, a man popular among conservative Republicans and one of the most divisive foreign policy thinkers. The question many now have is what will this do to the US policy of maximum pressure on Tehran since Donald Trump withdrew from the 2015 nuclear deal last year? Neither Iran nor any other hostile actor should mistake U.S. prudence and discretion for weakness. No one has granted them a hunting license in the Middle East. Iran can never have nuclear weapons, not against the USA and not against the world. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're talking about the departure of John Bolton looking at the career of one of America's most vocal hawks and asking how much of America's policy did this man shape during 17 months as National Security Advisor. When I interviewed Bolton in May, he was quiet, soft-spoken, but clearly not a man to be underestimated. To every question, he delivered a seemingly instantaneous but considered answer. He never hesitated nor reached for a turn of phrase. But he was never personable. He remained aloof and detached. He was dry, with little time for pleasantries. As soon as he'd finished speaking, on the dot of the 15-minute allotted time, he stood, walked out, and was gone, without acknowledgement. This encounter tallies with all the accounts from colleagues over the years who have described him as abrasive and combative. One who goes against the grain of almost every institution in which he's worked. Indeed, his departure doesn't seem to have been lamented by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who looked jubilant at a press briefing after the president broke the news. But let's look back at John Bolton's ascent to prominence. He was born in 1948 in a working-class neighbourhood of Baltimore to a firefighter and a stay-at-home mum, neither of whom finished high school. By contrast, the son of Virginia and Edward Bolton attended Yale, graduated law school and worked at the top of Republican administrations for decades. By all accounts, Bolton is an immensely intelligent figure. He's able to read, process and regurgitate reams of text, complex briefing documents and entire treaties. In a New Yorker profile of Bolton earlier this year, a US diplomat recounted asking about Somalia, to which Bolton replied by quoting verbatim from a memo written during the Reagan administration some 20 years before. As he spoke, the diplomat recounted, his eyes moved from left to right, as though he was reading the physical document. Bolton has seemingly always been a staunch conservative. In his 20s, he worked on the campaign of the divisive Republican candidate Barry Goldwater. His slogan, Battle the Eastern Establishment. It's not so far from Trump's own drain-the-swamp criticism of Washington. 
but for many of us, Bolton came into view after 9-11. A few months before the attacks, Bolton was appointed US Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security Affairs. Bolton was a fervent proponent of a military response to the attacks. He undertook a public crusade against America's enemies, real and imagined. He accused Cuba of using help from Libya and Iran to develop biological weapons to attack America. Syria and Iraq, of course, were on his list of rogue nations, as was North Korea and Iran. But Bolton wasn't just marching to the prevailing tune of the White House and of the country in the wake of 9-11. Colleagues and other officials have accused him of taking intelligence, fitting it to his worldview, and then presenting it as compelling evidence of the threats to American security. For example, other officials at the time said the intelligence documents didn't in any way support Bolton's claims that Cuba was developing biological weapons. But it isn't just America's enemies that Bolton appears to hold in contempt. In his 2007 book, Surrender is Not an Option, he gives a detailed and no-holds-barred account of his brief stint filling in as US ambassador to the UN. He belittles European diplomats who he paints as cozying up with America's enemies, and he says that the UK... America's closest ally, is simply playing Athens to Washington's Rome. By the mid-2000s, Bolton was regularly appearing on Fox News, and he secured his place as the already hawkish Republican Party's most militant-minded thinker. Anyone who disagreed with him was ridiculed and belittled as being soft. The Security Council can't deal with threats to international peace and security caused by the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Uh, Then one has to ask what the Security Council's function is in today's world. Enter the Trump administration. On April 9th, 2018, he was appointed U.S. National Security Advisor. The role is a senior aide to the president based in the White House, there to be Trump's go-to for issues of security. The New Yorker recounted Bolton hanging a framed copy of Trump's executive order nullifying the US nuclear agreement with Iran on the wall of his office. On this issue, Bolton, for years an advocate of preemptive strikes against the Iranian military and of the regime, seems to have found an ally in the president. In Bolton, the president has found a singularly minded man to carry out the new US maximum pressure campaign against Iran and turn up the heat on his adversaries so that the self-professed master negotiator could make a deal. But the two don't see eye to eye on everything. Bolton to this day defends the decision to invade Iraq in 2003 and his role in it. Trump, by contrast, says that he opposed the war from the start. Bolton wants a preemptive strike against just about everyone that once occupied his list of pariah nations. That includes North Korea. Meanwhile, the president is isolationist. He questions why the US military is deployed around the world, wants less involvement in the Middle East, and has also met with the North Korean leader several times as he seeks an agreement on their nuclear weapons programs. As with a lot of the Trump administration, it's often hard to get a real picture of how these relationships played out in private, partly because the accounts from the president himself, as well as different senior officials, can differ so widely. Whether Trump fired Bolton or Bolton quit is a perfect example of this. But what we can see is a White House that over the last three years has seen strong personalities clash. Lines and policies can turn on a dime, and one's offhand remarks can draw the president's ire. On Wednesday, Trump talked a bit more about why Bolton had to go. 
he highlighted comments Bolton had made about pursuing a Libyan model for disarmament of North Korea. Essentially, that's handing in stockpiles, making commitments in exchange for sanctions relief. But Bolton made those comments in April 2018, around the time he started in the post. The president remembered and then gave as cause to fire Bolton one idea he'd raised 17 months ago. During our roundtable with him, we all had to leave electronic equipment outside, no phones, laptops or smartwatches. Bolton said that he preferred that we didn't record so that we could just talk more freely. But being an on-the-record conversation meant that the six journalists around the table had to scribble notes as fast as they could to keep up, rather than being free to listen and transcribe from a recording. I still have my suspicions that the real reason was that so none of us had a recording if he questioned anything we wrote. If Trump read and didn't like any of the comments, Bolton could just deny he ever said them. When asked about leaks and controversies in the White House during the interview, Bolton was clear. He, he said, did not discuss internal matters with the press. My view of all this gossip column style reporting is summed up by the old saying from Central Asia. The dog barks and the caravan moves on, he said. Only since he's left, several White House officials have told the press that they didn't just suspect that he was the source of a lot of stories about the administration, but was in fact a prolific leaker. But that in itself might not be so strange for Bolton. If he did leak, they might not have even been the truth. In a 2010 interview with Fox News, Bolton spoke at length about how he would happily lie to the media if he felt he needed to. If I had to say something I knew was false to protect national security, I would, he said unequivocally. So now he's gone. Will Trump suddenly change course on Iran? Will we see a North Korean-style summit between President Donald Trump and Hassan Rouhani? Well, probably not is the answer that most of the people I've been speaking to have. But it's possible that his departure will lead to slight changes. The Daily Beast reported on Thursday that Trump was flirting with the idea of backing a French proposal to offer Iran $15 billion in credit in order to keep its commitments to the 2015 nuclear deal. The US administration had initially ruled this out. There's also a lot of talk, despite Iranian reticence, about whether Trump and Rouhani will meet during the UN General Assembly at the end of September. Reports suggest that one of the last major issues that the President and Bolton had was over this proposal. Earlier this week, I spoke with Douglas Silliman, who until February was US ambassador to Iraq. He has since taken up the post as President of the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. During his posting in Iraq, he came into contact with Bolton regularly. I don't think anything is really going to change with regard to U.S. policy, even U.S.-Iranian policy. Uh, Bolton, this administration has a multiplicity of views at senior levels, and you often have the president, the national security advisor, the vice president, the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, the secretary of energy, working on the same problem from entirely different angles, and frankly, not coordinating their positions particularly well. Ambassador Silliman was also quick to point out that Iran is just one of the many issues where Bolton and Trump disagreed. I think it's difficult to answer a question about John Bolton's departure simply from the lens of the Middle East. There also seem to have been disagreements about Venezuela and a variety of different policy disagreements between um, Israel and Palestine in Syria, not so much on Iraq, um, but certainly on Iran, there were differences of opinion. So I, I don't think you should isolate Iran as the reason for Bolton's departure. 
I think it had more to do with Bolton's relationship with the president. And that has generally been the cause of departures of senior people, not necessarily policy disagreements, but uh, disagreements in personality and management and leadership style. I also caught up with Joyce Karam, the National's Washington correspondent, to get her view on Bolton's departure. I think there are two dimensions here. Definitely, uh, you know, not achieving uh, what he had hoped for in in Venezuela helped uh, undermine him. But at the same time, it's not like this is President Bolton. He he was a national security advisor, and the big decisions were made by uh, the president. So, uh, so in a sense, while this could uh, allow more more room for. Uh, softer, less hawkish policies. At the same time, it wasn't Bolton that was setting the the agenda. Uh, so Mr. Trump uh, met with Kim Jong-un despite Bolton being in office. Zalmay Khalilzad held nine rounds of talks with the Taliban in Doha despite Bolton not liking that. Uh, the U.S. president is open to uh, meeting Iranian President um, Hassan Rouhani, uh, despite uh, Bolton also, you know, advising otherwise. So what we are likely to see later is, you know, a perhaps more influential uh, role for Mike Pompeo, uh, perhaps a pivot to a, a less hawkish uh, foreign policy ahead of the U.S. elections. I don't see a radical uh shift primarily because these policies have been in place before Bolton got the position and will continue to be. I mean, uh, Trump is not a hawkish uh, policy figure. He's somebody who has isolationist uh, tendencies. He does not uh, necessarily believe, you know, in traditional alliances with the Europeans uh, uh, and others. So uh, in that context, I don't see that uh, changing. It'll just be more uncertainty, uh, more uh, of the same when when we're talking about sanctions with Iran. Uh, But I'm not sure if we will see a major breakthrough uh, between now uh, and the elections on a foreign policy issue. Joyce also pointed out that Trump shouldn't have had any bias remorse when it came to Bolton. The man has been steadfast in his policy view for decades and has a well-known working style. She points to his clashes when working under President George W. Bush, as well as more recently with James Mattis when he was Trump's Secretary of Defence. So, what's next for Bolton? Well, he hasn't exactly left quietly. He's already denied the White House account of his exit and will very likely return to regular appearances on TV. So, there's possibly more to come on this. Trump? should have known before hiring him, and I'm sure he he knew that this is uh, uh, not exactly, you know, a smooth smooth policy guy. He he had clashed in the past when he was in the Bush administration, uh, you know, with Colin Powell. Uh, He had his... uh, his fights with Mattis. So in that sense, I think Trump knew beforehand the the, the persona that he was bringing into uh, that position. Having said that, that's the more reason that it's not expected uh, that Bolton would just leave the political scene smoothly. He's a very slick 
uh, operator. He has his base. A lot of people support him. And he has long history and very big network within uh, the Republican Party. So how this will play out within the, the establishment. Uh, we know now that uh, Mr. Bolton was working to undermine uh, the administration through leaks to the media. He knows a lot about the, the, the Trump administration. He was an insider. So we should expect to hear uh, more about his time there. Like him or loathe him. Bolton has the backing of quite a number of important Republicans. While the party has largely fallen in line behind the president that they once criticised when he launched the campaign, could the loss of someone with Bolton's profile damage this relationship? I do think that these uh, divides are already there. And to his credit, Bolton was someone who was able to talk to Congress, who was able to uh, relay the administration's message, whether it's to uh, Republicans uh, or Democrats. I mean, this is a bureaucrat who knows the government uh, so well. Uh, Without him there, and depends who his successor will be, uh, that channel uh, with Congress could suffer. you know, and some fear that he sort of balanced uh, Mr. Trump's uh, extreme instincts. Uh, so with him gone, uh, we'll have to wait and see who who his successor will be. That aspect of moderation, and it's crazy to have moderation and Bolton in the same sentence, but that could be one uh, liability for the administration. But where does this leave America on Iran? The way that I have viewed the past several months of um, escalation in Iran and in the Gulf is a relatively simple explanation. There is the American policy of maximum pressure on Iran, which is now being met by the Iranian policy of maximum resistance. Uh, There are a lot of parallels or mirror images in the words used. I've I've heard uh, Qasem Soleimani and others in Tehran essentially parrot some of the language that was first used by the American administration a few months ago. What has been clear to me throughout this is that neither President Trump nor the Iranian leadership want an all-out military confrontation. So what we saw, especially two to three months ago, the beginning of the summer, was a ramping up of deniable Iranian attacks, deniable Iranian pressure, using proxies, using the uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy in the Arabian Sea, in the the Strait of Hormuz, uh, seems to me to put pressure on not necessarily the United States, but on the UAE, potentially on Saudi Arabia, other oil suppliers, to then use their influence with the United States to try to come to the table. This has been in the form of attacks on tankers, more and more drones fired by Iran-backed rebels in Yemen at Saudi Arabia, and even a rocket fired from Iraq towards the kingdom as well. It's curious, some of the pinpricks, some of the Houthi drone attacks, uh, one from Iraq, uh, most from uh, from Yemen against uh, small but civilian facilities in Saudi Arabia. I, I think the message from Iran has been, if the pressure on us continues, we are going to slowly ramp up the pressure on those in the region. But it has all been, as I said, either deniable or incremental in a way that has not pushed toward an all-out conflict. So uh, the one thing that the departure of John Bolton may do for the American administration is, again, make it clear that President Trump does not want an all-out war with Iran. 
and probably, at least for a period of time, reduce the calls inside the administration for a more confrontational approach with the Iranians. Ambassador Silliman also said that the view of the Iranian people, as well as the government, has to be assessed, even though from the US, that can be hard to pin down. I've heard two completely different viewpoints from Iranians and others in the region about this issue, and I don't honestly know which is correct. Some have said the maximum pressure campaign is not only emboldening the hardliners in Tehran, but also strengthening their hand and making it possible for the Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Supreme Leader to blame the United States for the economic woes of Iran. I've also heard, I had dinner with some Iranian friends a couple of weeks ago who said, ah, that's, uh, that's hogwash. Everybody knows what the problem is in Tehran. We're all keeping our heads down, but we don't like these guys and we hope that they will eventually go. We're not blaming the United States for the economic difficulties, we're blaming the government and especially the hardliners. Um, I'm not sure that these can both be true, but they may both be true to some degree. After 17 months in the post, one of the main faces of America's escalating campaign against Iran has left. But with an administration that largely holds the same view of Tehran's policies, we're unlikely to see a major shift in approach. Whether Bolton becomes a vocal critic of the Trump administration is yet to be seen. If that is the case, I'm sure we'll see more tweets from the president about yet another former employee. Thanks this week to Ambassador Douglas Silliman in the studio here in Abu Dhabi, as well as Joyce Karam on the phone from Washington. This was Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes Young. Hit the subscribe button in your podcast app to get all the latest episodes. We were produced this week by Shikan and Arthur Edison, with assistance from Hannah Finnerton.